Hello and welcome to Deep Dive, a podcast looking beneath the surface of Japan. 100 kilometers north of Tokyo is Fukushima, a prefecture whose name became synonymous with nuclear disaster after the 2011 Great East Japan earthquake. But over the past few years, as Fukushima has recovered, it has begun to reimagine and recreate itself as one of the most ambitious prefectures in Japan when it comes to renewable energy. By 2040, it aims to run entirely on renewables and in the process hopes to leave behind that nuclear legacy. From the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd. And this week, my guest is staff writer Alex Martin, who traveled to the Fukushima Prefecture village of Otama to see how this push for renewables is actually playing out on the ground. Alex, thank you very much for joining me today and welcome back to Deep Dive. Thank you, Oscar, for having me. You've recently been up to the village of Otama in Fukushima Prefecture. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure.、Um, so last December, I traveled to、uh, Otama. It's a village in Fukushima Prefecture. It's quite small,、uh, population of about 8,700, I think.、Um, but it's a beautiful village. It lies at the foot of、uh, Mount Adatara, which is a ski resort and a popular hiking、uh, destination. And the region is famous for its shochu and. Right, sake so it's a, it's a rice producing community.、Um, so they make、uh, Japanese sake from their rice, and、uh, they also produce buckwheat, which is also used to make、uh, soba shochu, which is a type of distilled liquor. Did you try any when you were up there? Actually,、uh, actually no, I regret that. I had to、uh, go there.、Um, I arrived in the afternoon and I had to leave by night, and I didn't really have that much time to.、Uh, Um, enjoy the,、uh, the local food and、uh, booze. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so a flying local visit. But what, what actually brought you up to、uh, Otama? Right, so I was、um, surfing the internet、uh, looking for stories related to、uh, Fukushima and、uh, renewable energies, and I came upon a story. I think it was the Asahi.、Um, I might be wrong. It was a short story about how this village made a declaration back in June last year saying that they don't want any more、uh, mega solar farms. This is a Japanese term referring、mm. to、uh, solar farms that produce more than 1,000 kilowatts of、uh, energy. So, all time of this village has become somewhat of a symbolic case. Of the tension surrounding renewable energies and solar in Fukushima. Correct, because I knew that Fukushima was really、uh, pushing for renewables. So、uh, it was an interesting story where、uh, it sort of dawned on me that, okay, not all these projects are probably accepted by the local communities. Okay, interesting. I want to move on to those tensions later, but let's first talk a bit about Fukushima and its、uh, renewable strategy, because I think that's really interesting. So, what is, what is their strategy and approach towards renewables? Right. So, obviously,、um, there was the big earthquake, tsunami, and the nuclear meltdowns at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant back in 2011. And that was a catalyst for the prefecture to move towards renewables.、Mm. Um, currently, their goal is. To power 100% of the region with、uh, renewable energy by、uh, 2040. And currently, I think they're、uh, producing about 40% of that. Meaning, Fukushima Prefecture both has this really ambitious target and they're also producing、right. more energy by renewables than what is average in Japan. That's correct. How does Fukushima actually plan to reach its target of 100% renewable energy by 2040? Right now, I think、uh, solar and wind are the、uh, two primary uh, uh, energy sources to reach that target. And、uh, last year,、um, I think it was towards the end of last year, the Nikkei、uh, reported that、uh, the prefecture is planning to develop、uh, 11 solar and 10 wind power plants on、uh, abandoned farmlands and、uh, mountainous re-、uh, regions suffering、uh, depopulation.、Um, this project is,、uh, I think they're aiming to、uh, finish it by、uh, the end of March 2024. And it's an expensive project costing about 300 billion yen. And it's going to be sponsored in part by the,、uh, the government owned、uh, Development Bank of Japan and、uh, Mizuho. 
so they've got real concrete projects in place to actually try and bring about this transformation towards 100% renewables. That's correct. And, you know, various parties involved, it's not uh, just these banks, but there's local uh, um, renewable uh, energy uh, businesses, um, various parties involved, the prefecture, obviously, and uh, things like that. And that renewable energy, is that just being used to power Fukushima itself, or are they planning to export it around Japan? Or, it's going to be mostly sent to uh, the Tokyo metropolitan area. So yeah, going back to the project, uh, so they're going to be creating an 80-kilometer new uh, grid that's going to cre- connect these uh, solar plants and uh, wind power plants um, with uh, TEPCO's um, uh, networks. And then that energy is going to be sent to uh, Tokyo and the, the wider Tokyo region. So the energy produced is going to be powering the Japan Times and other places. Indeed, it's coming to us. (laughs) To me, the shift to 100% renewables by 2040 sounds encouraging, and particularly in the context of Japan being criticised more generally. I think, for its ongoing commitments to fossil fuels. Um, but let's move back to the village of Otama and the tensions that you actually saw there. Right, so in terms of uh, Otama village, the place I visited, um, currently there's about three uh, mega solar farms, um, each producing more than 1,000 kilowatts of energy. And these take a lot of space, obviously, I think around maybe 10,000 square meters. Um, of uh, mountainous areas, and to create these solar farms, you need to cut the trees down. You know, create a place where there's no shade, so it doesn't bother the uh, the solar uh, panels, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the things, the, the issue is, you know, these are eyesores. This village really prides itself on its uh, sort of rural beauty. It's part of the uh, there's an association called the uh, the most beautiful villages of Japan. It's an it's a non-government um, organization. And I think you wrote in your piece that the town was actually paired with Machu Picchu right. in 2015. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of a different story, um, but apparently one of the residents um, uh, traveled to uh, Peru back in the early 20th century, and uh, the villagers say he became the first mayor of Machu Picchu. <laughs> I haven't really corroborated this um, yet, so I, I can't say if it's true or not, but uh, in either case, he was a very prominent Japanese figure in Peru, and uh, he helped boost tourism to Machu Picchu. And uh, for that reason, uh, I think the village became the first twin city with the uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> famous uh, place. <laughs> but, but basically, the issue comes down to that it's a very sort of sounds right. like quite quaint, pretty yeah. traditional Japanese village, which now mm-hmm. has these whopping great solar projects. Right, it. and it's not only you know the fact that these uh, solar facilities take a lot of space. Um, the thing is, like these are operated by developers coming in from outside Fukushima, and sometimes they change hands. So I think they're concerned that, you know, 20 years, 30 years on, when the life of these solar panels are up, who's going to actually clean them up? Who's going to dispose of this massive piles of you know, metal and uh, sheets um, all over the place? And things like that, you know, I think it's, it's about project management and actually thinking about the environment in the long term. Um, because a lot of these uh, developers are coming in um, to make money off the uh, the feed-in tariff scheme that we can talk about next um, mm-hmm. is operating right now. So they're concerned that, you know, in the long term, are these developers actually thinking about the village? Are they thinking about us? Are they going to be reliable when it comes to cleaning up the place, et cetera, et cetera? And uh, I don't think they've uh, gotten a, a concrete answer yet from these people, and that's why they're making this declaration. So is there a tension then between the local village-level governance and then Fukushima's ambition? I don't think there's a significant 
tension between Fukushima and perhaps a village like Otama. I think it's it's I think it's more between um, locals and developers, um, businesses, mostly coming from outside Fukushima. So I think the so going back to Otama, it was uh, the I talked to the the deputy mayor of the uh, the village. The mayor was not there that day I went, so it was the deputy mayor. But he mentioned that Otama was one of the first villages. Um, to uh, declare their uh, support for renewables after the earthquake. This is, I think they declared in 2011 or 12. So they were initially very sort of positive and supportive of the whole idea of uh, renewables. And I think this is something that's common in, you know, a lot of uh, municipalities in Fukushima. Um, there's a very strong aversion to nuclear energy, obviously, because of the damage um, that it caused. So I think the, uh, the feeling is that renewables, yes, we support it, but, you know, we, you, developers, you need to take responsibility for, for what you're doing. You, know, you just can't mm -hmm. come in here and, like, cut down trees and create these, you know, massive solar farms and just leave it there. You know, we, we like renewables, we're going to push for it, but, you know, just take responsibility. So you mentioned this concept of feed-in tariffs, which as far as I understand it, are basically a way of financing solar and renewable projects so that developers are guaranteed a certain amount of income um, in return for their investment in these once upon a time quite risky projects, I think. Um, so could you tell us about that and how, how that's playing out both in Fukushima and bringing um, developers to Fukushima, but also the kind of wider Japan aspects of that? Sure. It's a pretty complicated system, so um, if uh, listeners are really interested, I uh, suggest you actually Google the term <laughs> and look at, <laughs> look at other stories, because um, I don't think I've you know completely grasped the concept myself. But uh, speaking generally, there's uh, the feed-in tariff scheme applies to two different parties. One is the uh, the, the single households, so people having uh, solar panels uh, placed on their roofs, and stuff like that. Then you have the businesses producing more, uh, you know, for solar farms and bigger facilities. The idea was that uh, to create these solar farms, you need uh, quite a significant uh, amount of capital investment necessary to just, you know, buy the solar panels, you know, buy the land, have people come and set it up, do the maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. So by the time they set it up and by the time it starts making money, there's, you know, a significant amount of time loss in between, plus the rates may, may not be good enough to actually get the return. So the incentive was pretty low in terms of setting up solar farms um, before the, uh, the, the earthquake. So what the government did was uh, they in introduced this feed in that tariff scheme where they would uh, promise these uh, businesses producing solar energy that uh, they would, the utilities would buy their electricity for a certain amount. And uh, I think back in 2012 when the project launched, uh, big businesses were making, I th think, around 40 yen per uh, kilowatt. And I think households were promised like 48 yen. And these sort of gradually go down uh, each year. Mm -hmm. So I think right now it's in the 20 yen uh, level, 24 yen or something like that. So basically the idea is as people recoup their initial investment, mm -hmm. they're supported less and less. That's um, correct. Or people and businesses, I guess, they're supported less and less mm -hmm. yeah, as they make their investment back. Right, that's correct. The problem is, uh, so... Part of the, uh, the, the, the money that uh, the utilities are uh, using to buy up these energies, they come back on our own utility bills. So if you look at your uh, monthly electricity bills, you might find a little section indicating uh, the amount you're paying for renewables. And this amount, although it may sound, you know, seem small for like individual households, as a total, I think it's ballooned to almost like 10 trillion yen over the past uh, eight years. Mm -hmm. 
And it's becoming sort of an issue, obviously, because you know it's our own money uh, that's going to pay these uh, businesses. So the government's uh, starting to consider introducing a more sort of competitive um, scheme, where uh, like a bidding process. And I think that's uh, currently being debated and probably going to be put into use, or perhaps I think it might already be in use uh, to a certain extent. That's the next move. So the concern here is that because these rates, these incentives have been guaranteed for a certain amount of time, renewables have actually become more expensive for the consumer than they might otherwise have been. And a policy that once helped solar be more competitive might actually now be holding it back. That's generally correct, yes. Looking back at Fukushima Prefecture then, apart from solar and wind, what other kind of projects are they um, developing? Right, so um, at this point, uh, one of the world's largest hydrogen plants uh, is being built in the uh, coastal town of Namie, uh, which um, is going to be used to, uh, fuel, uh, to use for fuel cell vehicles and other purposes during the Olympics. And this is part of the move um, by Fukushima and the, you know, the central government to sort of play up these areas as uh, symbols of reconstruction and the shift to green. Um, there's also a, a neighboring town called Katsurao. Um, this is a, a very tiny town with a population of about 1,400. And all the uh, villagers had to evacuate, um, move out after the disaster for about five years. And they're returning now. And they're trying to create their own sort of uh, grid in the, in the town center, um, powered by a, uh, a 2,000 kilowatt uh, solar plant and also a 3,000 kilowatt uh, storage cell. The idea being that if something, you know, a disaster strikes again, and uh, in the, if the existing power grids go off, they can still use their own energy to power, you know, necessary infra infrastructure. So as well as a general shift towards renewables, the prefecture is also encouraging new approaches towards energy and how it's actually distributed so that it's not just coming from one centralized grid. Right. So I think self-sufficiency is going to be the main thing uh, in, the, in the coming years. Um, Going back to the feeding tariff scheme, a lot of the uh, uh, the private um, homes uh, that signed into uh, a scheme preceded the uh, the feeding tariff scheme. There's another scheme that started in 2009. That's coming to an end. So these folks, um, the rates that they would get when they would sell their energy is uh, much lower than uh, their their initial rates that they got 10 years ago. So what what are they going to do? They can sign up with other utilities and keep on selling their electricity for you know a reduced rate, or they can buy a storage cell, um, like the the village of Katsurao is uh, trying to do, and uh, preserve their own energy to cut down on their own family or you know household uh, electricity bills. So I think things like this, um, you know, sort of self sufficiency and producing your own energy, etc., is going to be um, a big thing in the coming years. Mm, interesting. It sounds like we're going to see more and more households who were initially encouraged to purchase solar cells so that they could sell the electricity back into the grid, um, actually using them just for their own purposes. Right. Although the, I hear that, you know, the issue is uh, these storage cells, e even for households, when it costs like, you know, one million to two million yen. So it's quite an investment. Plus, there's a long line waiting for them. They're so popular that, you know, if you want to buy one, you've got to wait six months to a year or something like that, because the producers are just can't catch up on demand. Mm. In, our, in our last podcast, we told the story of Iki, uh, the first place in Japan to declare a climate emergency. And one of the big problems that we actually found they were seeing is that they've got all this solar potential and they want to increase the amount that they actually produce via solar, but the main problem is storage um, because they're separated from the 
kind of mainland Kyushu grid. Right, right. So they're having to turn off their solar systems during peak times of the day because they're producing too much electricity and it's actually not got anywhere to go. Yeah, that's that's exactly, uh, that's the other issue. Um, for example, during the winter season, um, since uh, the temperature is not really high, it's actually a good condition for uh, solar panels. Um, during you know the peak summer season, I think the temperature of the, the solar panels climbs so high so that you know their pr- productivity falls. So it's it's it's, it's contradictory because during the winter time, at the same time the days are so short, right? At 4 p.m., 5 p.m. it gets dark. So the solar cells, I mean the the solar uh, panels are working really nicely, but they're not getting enough sunlight. Plus, it's the time of the year when you use most the most amount of electricity. Then during like you know golden week season in uh, May, let's say um, springtime, it's the best season and you know. If, throughout the year for solar panels you know it's not too hot uh, lots of sunshine produces a lot of energy but the problem is like you know nobody uses their um, air conditioner during that season it's so nice that you just keep the windows open mm, right, very temperate right. Summer, so demand's right. really low so that's the issue with solar uh, energy is that you know the, the peak seasons for producing solar energy doesn't really match the needs of us thus the uh, necessity for these uh, storage cells Before we wrap up this episode, I want to come back uh, once more to the tensions between the development of renewable technologies in the region and the local residents and ask um, if people in Otama are concerned about these solar mega farms being built, but at the same time, they don't really want nuclear energy to come back. How do they, how do they resolve that dilemma? Right. So in uh, December last year, um, this is after they made the uh, declaration in June against uh, mega solar. In December, they, uh, the village passed an ordinance. So they're asking developers coming in uh, with the intention of producing more than 10 kilowatts of energy to uh, follow certain rules <clears throat> in terms of uh, environmental conservation and uh, you know the management, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's it's an ordinance. It doesn't have very strong authority, um, but the village by you know, creating something like this, I think they're trying to appeal to newcomers that, you know, you really need to follow the rules here when you come in. You know, we appreciate renewable energy and things like that, but you really need to sort of uh, follow the rules and, you know, try to work with us to conserve, you know, the the beauty of the village um, and things like that. At the same time, the village offers subsidized uh, subsidies for uh, uh, individual households uh, interested in putting solar panels on their roofs. So I think that's the direction they want to really take. So, mm-hmm. you know, it goes back to like an you know, individual production of renewable energies. I think that's what the village is trying to sort of promote rather than having these massive farms producing energy that doesn't come to the village, right? They're usually going to be fed off to uh, the, the massive utilities that sends them to like big cities like Tokyo. So it doesn't really come back to them. So rather than that, you know, produce energy for yourself. To try and sum up the story then, we've got... Fukushima Prefecture, just to the north of Tokyo, with this target of reaching 100% renewables by 2040. Uh, It's more ambitious than anywhere else in the country. But we've also got these very real tensions um, at a local level with people concerned about how these renewables will affect their uh, local environment. With these issues in mind, do you think that Fukushima is a useful role model for the rest of Japan in terms of shifting towards uh, using more renewable energy? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, um, it, it is, is, it's probably the, the only uh, prefecture that can probably uh, uh, accomplish something like that before the other prefectures because of the stigma it has, uh, the nuclear disaster and tsunami and earthquake. Um, so they're, they're, they're 
in a good standpoint in terms of uh, the attention they're getting um, and their very ambitious goals. And I think uh, there's, a, there's a strong consensus between uh, among the municipalities in Fukushima Prefecture to sort of uh, move towards renewables. So I think they're set in a, a very good location in terms of achieving their, their goal compared to other places in the nation, yeah. So through this kind of horrible destruction, they've actually managed to seize some opportunity and, oh, yeah. and hopefully lead the transition towards renewables in Japan. Yes. Great. Well, Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Deep Dive with me, Oscar Boyd, and our guest this week was Japan Times staff writer Alex Martin. You can find links to his article and other interesting reading material in the show notes for this week's episode. Before we wrap up, I want to announce a little experiment that Deep Dive is going to be trying over the next few weeks. One of the things that we learned in our reader survey back last year was that you want to hear more sounds from all around Japan. So we thought we'd open up the end of the show to you guys, the audience. If you have any fantastic sounding audio clips from around Japan, it could be the sounds of a festival at a nearby shrine, it could be the sound of waves washing up on an Okinawan shore, or even a story that you're telling about something that you find interesting in your neighborhood, please do send them through to us. We're looking for clips in around the one minute to two minute range. And they don't have to be professionally recorded at all. So whatever you have from a phone or other recording device. In your email to us, please do be sure to include a bit of information about yourself as well as when and where and why you recorded the clip you did. We'll be following up with any clips that we decide to use in the show. One more time, that email address is deepdive at japantimes.co.jp and it will be in the episode notes. Thank you as always for listening in. Subscribe to us, rate us and review us on whichever podcasting platform you use. And as always, Podskare Summer.